You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. And so this morning, um, as we start our service, I uh, wanted to share a responsive call to worship. And I'm going to put that here in the uh, chat. And perfect. Um, So like we've uh, done in the past, feel free to unmute yourself if you're uh, comfortable uh, doing so. And we can hear that cacophony of out of sync voices here on Zoom. Um, But I'll uh, read for us the parts uh, that say leader and we'll respond as a community with the parts that say all. Um, And we don't always do these formal liturgies, but especially in this series that we're doing right now with church history, um, I wanted us to focus on more specific kind of liturgical uh, traditions um, that kind of fit in here. So the liturgies that we're sharing are all going to be very much a part of uh, or or kind of um, uh, fit well with who we are as a community here at Central. But this call to worship is a piece of liturgy that is designed to kind of center and gather us as a community of faith. And so it happens first thing in uh, the service, uh, if you come from a liturgical tradition, um, before even opening prayers are uh, offered. And it's really to kind of set the tone of why we're here, create a sacred space, not in a specific building that's sacred, but in a community gathering in a place, or like us, a community gathering all over the place that becomes sacred. Um, so would you join me here in our call to worship this morning? Let us open our hearts to the presence of love. Without, Without love, love, our words are but a noise, and our actions are empty. When we stray from love, we stray from God. When we turn, we turn towards love, love our, our lives are rich with meaning. So let us seek love in all we do. Love, love that protects. Love that sets free. Love, love that is tender. Love that challenges. Love Love that that encourages. encourages. Thanks be to God, who is love everlasting. Let's pray. God of love, we join you this morning with Christians gathered across the world, with different faiths, with different beliefs, different histories, and different experiences. And yet, despite where we come from, you call us together in love to be people of love, especially in a time where we have been set apart, when we've been so divided politically uh, in the middle of a global pandemic and everything else that's happened over the last couple of years. Your church and your world needs love more now than more than ever before. Let us be the embodiment of your love, your presence, your hope in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to share also a piece of liturgy this morning um, that 
uh, in line with uh, Aaron's discussion um, uh, last week. Uh, this is going to be uh, just an affirmation. This is written by Reverend M. Barclay, Ed and Fleshed, and it's, uh, I'm gonna share it here in the chat as I do read that. Um, but this affirmation is sort of like the creeds that we talked about uh, last week. It's uh, not a formal creed. It's written to be modern and contemporary. And it is certainly something that I think fits with who we are. So while creeds are something interesting in our liturgical past in the church, they're also something that we can reclaim. So I dropped that in the chat so that you can follow along. Um, but hear this and let this be our prayer this morning of affirmation. We believe God is love and from love, all things are born. No creature or creation falls outside of God's eternal embrace. We believe forces of domination and destruction, control and greed, prejudice and violence pervade our lives, seeking to turn us against one another, against the earth, and against the spirit of the liberating Christ. We believe we depend on God, the remembrance of our ancestors, the courage of the prophets, and the wisdom that can only flow from the margins in order to grow in love. We believe in the power of God to make what seems impossible possible. We believe in the good news that sets the captives free. We believe in proclaiming the truths that unsettle unjust power and encourage collective liberation. We proclaim that Black Lives Matter and that white supremacy is sin, that queer love is divine, that trans bodies are beautiful, that immigrants must be welcomed, that women must be granted full bodily autonomy, that the earth must be protected, that the rich shall be sent away empty, that all bodies are good bodies, and we celebrate our siblings of other faiths and spiritualities. We proclaim these things in aspiration that we might learn to live them in full. We recognize still other truths remain hidden and we pray we may continue to grow in understanding, in love for all our neighbors, in hunger for justice and in the steadfast practice of our faith. Amen. Thanks, Bob. Uh, well, as uh, mentioned, we will be taking communion this morning as we do each week. So uh, if you've not yet been able to grab something for your elements, here is your last warning to do so. Um, as you probably know, Aaron's talking about Gnosticism this week, um, and it's a good reminder about how there have been and continue to be different approaches to understanding and experiencing the divine, um, to understanding, experiencing um, community, um, places of love, uh, faith, peace, justice. Um, and so we'll get a little bit of what that has looked like in church history um, from the lens of Gnosticism. Um, um, as Aaron speaks, but I thought it'd be a nice balance um, to do a communion liturgy that is um, based in meditative and intimate um, approaches to um, 
to understanding the divine and experiencing community. So uh, with that, I will read this communion prayer um, and then we will take the elements together. Let's pray. God is with us. I invite you to take a moment and close your eyes. Draw your awareness to the presence of the divine within your spaces and in each person gathered here virtually. Draw your attention to your heart and imagine breathing in and out of your heart, opening it up to the divine with gratitude as we pray. Loving one close to us as breathing yet reaching into eternity, we give you thanks. Your outpouring of radical love has brought forth life among us. You have shown yourself to us as parent, creator, lover, and friend. In whatever image will bring us healing, you come to us. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with all of creation, all of heaven and earth, who forever sing the hymn of holy, holy, holy one, God of love and light. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in your name, O God, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you and blessed is your child, Jesus Christ. He showed us the ways of justice and mercy, turning the norms of society upside down. He welcomed and empowered the outsider and stood in resistance to the powers of oppression. Like so many among us today, Christ's choice to live his truth and challenge oppression put him at risk. And yet, on the night in which death, hatred, and betrayal would seek to have the last and lasting word, Christ remained centered in radical peace and showed us love embodied by washing the feet of his beloveds and by serving them at your table. At the table, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks to you and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your acts of love in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves and all of who we are in union with Christ's offering. As we proclaim the mystery of our faith, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body of Christ that we might become interdependent with each other as Christ's body, reflecting your diverse image in the world. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other and each other's struggles until we feast at your heavenly banquet through your beloved Jesus Christ with the love of the Holy Spirit in your church, all love and devotion is yours. Amen. And with that, I invite you to take the elements. Amen. Cool.
Good morning, everyone. So obviously, since we're back to remote, we don't have a lot going on, but uh, it does look like hopefully numbers are going down. <clears throat> so we will have a holy happy hour Friday, February 11, um, outside of the parsonage. So that'll be at Aaron and Emily's house. Um, hopefully, uh, two weeks from now, numbers will be a lot better and we'll feel safer. And that will be at 8.30 p.m. And that's it. Thanks, Angie. So prayer requests, words of Thanksgiving. Um, now is the time that we share what's going on in our lives. So if you have something you want to um, share or, or have prayed about and or have prayed about, uh, you can unmute and bring it up or you can put it in the chat column if you're more comfortable doing that. And I'll do my best to see it. Anybody have anything this morning? Hi, everyone. Hey, Sarah. Um, I booked a, a guest star, a multi-day guest star, which I'm really excited about. Hey, and congratulations. Can <laughs> you say you. Can you say more about the project? It's a new Apple TV Plus show. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, so I'd love to give thanks for that. We film the first day tomorrow, and I'm just a little nervous. Okay. So um, some thanks and then also some prayers for, yeah. yeah. Well, wow. Congratulations. Let's, let's give thanks and let's pray. Loving God, we give thanks for this, um, this great news from Sarah. And we can tell, tell how, how excited she is and we celebrate that with her. And um, we just pray for her nerves, uh, for any anxiety she's experiencing. Uh, may she be filled with, with confidence and know the loving support of us, her friends and family, um, strengthen her, we pray. And we give thanks, amen. Great, awesome. Somebody else? Hey, Aaron. Hey, Meg. Um, Hello, everyone. So uh, this week we found out that one of Cameron's good friends in her uh, second grade class is gonna have open heart surgery. Um, and she's supposed to have open heart surgery in March um, if they can wait that long. So they were gonna do a procedure and it didn't work. So um, now uh, everybody is just kind of nervous <laughs> um, and uh, trying to hold as much space for that family as possible because it is uh, something that I can't imagine. So we can no. just be praying for Olivia's family and for Olivia. Um, because they're obviously all very nervous and uh, the waiting is really hard to just to try to get them in. Apparently everything's really, really packed right now yeah. um, with procedures. So just prayers for her family. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift up Olivia and this horrific situation. We pray for her health and well-being. We pray for her family. Um, and the parents here can just in some ways sympathize with the agony they must be going through. We pray for their, for their strength, their comfort, their support, um, their hope. We pray for um, all of them, but most of all, Olivia, be with her. Uh, be with her, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Yeah. Um, did somebody else uh, raise their voice? I don't know if I heard that. Anybody else? Hello. Hello, Andre. Yes. 
So uh, that was me. This week I will have a, a knee surgery for a flipped meniscus. Uh, I'm sorry, you are, I'm sorry you're, you're having knee surgery? I didn't hear that right. Knee surgery, yes. I'll have a, a surgery on my knee for a flipped meniscus. Uh, it uh, shouldn't be anything uh, too dangerous, just a bit time consuming, and they will also be releasing me the same day. But okay, yeah, just so patient. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's still, that's still surgery. Yeah, let's, let's pray. We lift up Andre and pray for him this week as he is facing surgery. We pray for uh, good surgery and a great recovery. Uh, we pray for um, just his nerves and any anxiety he's experiencing. May he know um, our loving support and a kind of spiritual strength through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Um, all right. Anybody else? With that, uh, Max, I will turn it back over to you. Sure, thank you. There's Mira playing with a uh, doorstop. <laughs> Don't know if you can hear that through my uh, headphones, but it's right on the, this wall right behind. <laughs> it, is, uh, it, it, is, it is quite loud. <laughs> that's, that's our Mira. Um, so for today, instead of uh, doing uh, a music, um, uh, sharing a music piece uh, or, or video, um, we're going to do a, a poem. Um, so this one is by many of our favorites in many ways. It's, it's actually a Mary Oliver poem, but one that I was not very familiar with until, until Parker Palmer um, shared it recently. Um, and if you don't know who Parker Palmer is, um, wonderful author, um, poet in his own right. Um, but he said this about the poem, so I'll give you his commentary and then we'll read the poem. Um, and I invite you to let it be a meditative um, time um, to hear it, uh, to pick out words. We often do like a Lexio Divina type approach um, in, in, um, in hearing the word spoken. Um, so I invite you to let it be what it needs to be for you this morning. But um, again, I'll, I'll read the context of how um, Parker Palmer shares it with us today. How did Mary Oliver manage to write a poem that links, get this, oxygen and love, years before Americans got into a truly demented debate about whether love thy neighbor includes keeping the air as free as possible of a deadly virus? No, this poem is not about the pandemic. It was occasioned by the death of Mary Oliver's beloved partner, Molly Malone Cook, who needed help breathing during her last weeks. But today, as I read Mary Oliver's words with all of the COVID deaths in mind, I ask myself again, how did we allow a public health crisis to become so politicized? More important, what can I, we, do to promote a public ethic of love? And if love is too much to ask for, is there any way to make good old common sense go viral? As Mary Oliver suggests, the fire itself seems grateful as it feeds, as we all do, as we must upon the invisible gift, our purest sweet necessity, the air. May the day come when we can stop burning with shame and instead blaze with gratitude for each other and for life itself. And I'll read the poem. The poem is titled Oxygen. Everything needs it. 
bone, muscles, and even while it calls the earth its home, the soul. So the merciful noisy machine stands in our house working away in its lung-like voice. I hear it as I kneel before the fire, stirring with a stick of iron, letting the logs lie more loosely. You, in the upstairs room, are in your usual position, leaning on your right shoulder, which aches all day. You are breathing patiently. It is a beautiful sound. It is your life, which is so close to my own that I would not know where to drop the knife of separation. And what does this have to do with love except everything? Now the fire rises and offers a dozen singing deep red roses of flame. Then it settles to quietude or maybe gratitude as it feeds as we all do, as we must, upon the invisible gift, our purest sweet necessity, the air. I leave that with you. I will link to it so you can read over it again um, if you'd like to. All right, thanks, Max. So this is part two in our church history series this week. And uh, we're looking at Gnosticism today. Randy asked me last week if uh, well, to expound on this most important and in interesting chapter in church history. And uh, it actually has a lot of re relevance still today. Gnosticism was both a religious and philosophical movement in church history that may have began with the church in the first century or just before. And some even argue uh, that Gnosticism actually gave birth to the church or was born alongside Christianity as like a uh, twin movement coming out of what's called Second Temple Period Judaism, which was a very Hellenized, which means Greek-influenced Judaism. In a lot of ways, Christianity is basically Hellenized Judaism, and so is Gnosticism. More about that in a minute. So to be clear, Gnosticism was extremely influential on early Christianity or vice versa. It's a little, it's a little hard to know uh, which came first. It's like the, uh, the old chicken or the egg dilemma. Because again, it, it probably came out of, Gnosticism probably came out of Second Temple period, just uh, Second Temple period Judaism, just like Christianity. And to muddy the waters further, Gnosticism was a very broad school of thought. It wasn't just one thing or one idea, but like early Christianity itself, it was, it was pretty chaotic and made up of different schools of thought, each with their own nuances. So in some ways, it's really hard to pin down and define, but there are some general shared ideas among many of the Gnostic texts that we've recovered, and we've recovered a lot, like around 100. Um, so there's, there's, there's enough general shared ideas uh, for us to kind of um, focus on and discuss, but we have to have the understanding that Gnosticism was not some monolithic movement or, or, or an organized sect within Christianity, but rather kind of a loose collection of various ideas, practices, and beliefs that, that permeated the early church and to some extent uh, remain in the church today. 
we should begin by understanding the etymology of the word Gnostic itself. Gnostic is, of course, a Greek term, uh, and that means uh, having knowledge. Gnostic means to have knowledge. This means that Gnosticism is a kind of esoterica, meaning it's about gaining secret knowledge. That sounds pretty cool, right? It's about gaining secret knowledge or, or acquiring special knowledge about God or about the nature of reality or about the nature of ourselves as human beings. And, and the idea is once you acquire this, this secret special knowledge, <laughs> you achieve salvation, where in the afterlife, you will achieve oneness with God and live, live eternally with God in perfect bliss, perfect oneness. What's this, uh, what's this special secret knowledge you might ask? Well, you're going to hear it this morning. You're going you're, you're gonna, to you're gonna be included on the big secret. Uh, to put it simply, the, the special secret knowledge of Gnosticism is, is the knowledge of our true selves. Uh, our, the knowledge that we are divine spirits imprisoned in mortal bodies. It's the knowledge that this body and this world is not our home and that our true home is in heaven with God above. I'm, I'm not saying that this is true, by the way. I'm just saying that this is what Gnosticism teaches in general. Uh, it's the knowledge that this realm and all matter, space, and time is hopelessly corrupt and evil and something we must leave behind. It's intrinsically bad. Uh, those who gain this knowledge and, and live into it will be saved and transcend this mortal coil and achieve oneness with God for all of eternity. So that's Gnosticism, uh, and, 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 it's, and it's kind of mystical in that way. But notice the difference between the Gnostic worldview uh, and the Orthodox or traditional Christian worldview, right? In, in, in traditional or orthodox Christianity, we're told that God made the world perfect and good, but at the fall in the Garden of Eden, when the first humans disobeyed God, their sin corrupted this realm with all manner of evil, suffering, and death. Therefore, since that time, God has been working tirelessly to redeem us, namely or primarily through the person of Jesus of Nazareth and his atoning death and resurrection which was a taste of the world to come, we're told, when God will right all wrongs and do away with evil, suffering, and death once and for all, and return this world back to an Eden-like state, a perfect state. That's basically the redemptive arc of history from a traditional or orthodox Christian perspective, at least since the fourth century AD, which is when the Nicene Creed dates from, which we, look, which we looked at last week. That's basically when Orthodox Christianity became Orthodoxy. However, Gnosticism says that the reason why this world, this realm, this universe is, is so fraught with evil, suffering, and death, and, and, and precarious, and finite, uh, it, it isn't because the world was made perfect and, and uh, then corrupted by us or Satan or some combination of both, but rather it's because this world, this universe was made imperfect by an evil deity. There are many divine beings in Gnosticism. It's kind of polytheistic. Uh, and these other gods or other beings are quite powerful, powerful enough to create worlds and universes like this one. Uh, but they are not the one true God. Therefore, this universe 
is not going to be redeemed, according to Gnosticism. Uh, it's not going to be returned to some Eden-like state, some pre-fallen state. So we must be liberated from it. And the only way is through special revelation or special knowledge and gaining this secret special knowledge that this place is not our home and we are divine spirits imprisoned here. In this context, Jesus is seen as the ultimate liberator and the one who was sent by God to give us this special knowledge, to teach it to us, to reveal it to us. So that's, that's basically what Gnosticism is and more or less what many of the various schools of thought believed. Um, and I want to pause there for a minute because uh, that's a lot of information. We're dealing with a lot of a lot of information today, uh, and I just want to off, open up for any any questions about any of that, any comments before I go on. Uh, does anybody have anything? Yeah, it seems like um, Paul might have referred to the Gnostics when he said things like, um, touch the spirits to see whether they are of God. Um, he that confesses that Jesus Christ has come as the flesh is of God, because I think Gnosticism believed that Jesus did not have flesh i'm correct me if i'm wrong on that but that yeah. he was just a spirit i didn't you know that's a that's a really good so. question yeah um my understanding of the general way gnostics perceived jesus was as something like um a very glorified angel um that he was he was divine mm -hmm. but not like he, he, orthodoxy said jesus was fully divine and fully human <laughs> And the Gnostics were, were basically saying, well, it depends, it depends on the different Gnostics. And again, I don't have a lot of clarity on this, but again, they believe the body itself is corrupt and, 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 and kind of evil. And so Jesus um, was, I, I think their understanding was that he was a fully divine being and not like any part human. But again, there's a lot of, I don't know if anybody has clarity on that, but um, that's my understanding of it. One thing I'll say when, first of all, I love the Gnostic writings. I think they're fascinating. Yeah. Um, but one thing that's really helpful, like in your whole conversation that you're framing as we're talking about these, is that um, in the first century here, when all of the New Testament, the, our, our New Testament is being written, the only holy scriptures are, uh, is, what is now our old testament the hebrew bible right. so you know paul's letters are all the writings of him talking to the churches helping people figure out what is authentically christian faith and what's coming somewhere else so he's in a process of kind of like helping people understand what is going to be the understanding of of jesus and what's not so when when we talk about like okay there's our bible and then there's these gnostic gospels that wasn't like a distinct category people in the early church are reading all kinds of different things and all different kinds of ideas are coming together and like you said it's not till way later that we actually formulate it but all these texts are kind of um, floating around they're not as early lots of them but they're a part of that history so yeah. like you're saying there's um it's not just one Gnostic school of thought. There is many Gnosticisms and they're yes. all different and they share a lot of things in common um, often. Um, yeah, but it's so, so, so diverse, which is at least helpful in trying to organize and figure out like what makes sense, what doesn't, why do they, are they all so different? Anyways, yeah. that's, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Bob. 
good stuff. All right, if there's no other initial questions or comments, I'm gonna go on because there's uh, lots of other stuff to cover and you can always, we can always, we'll always re-engage in discussion at the end of, of my presentation here, so. All right, so in order to really understand Gnosticism, one needs to understand just how Greek it was, okay? Uh, in particular, just how rooted it was in what's called Platonism, which of course is the name of Plato's philosophy and worldview which originates, of course, with him some 500 or, yeah, five centuries before Christ. Plato taught, among other things, I don't mean to oversimplify Plato here this morning, but Plato taught, among other things, that reality was constructed out of a hierarchy of forms. What does that mean? Well, it means that the material world, this world, this, this world of matter, space, time, right? The material world and the things in it, like bodies, the earth, trees, rocks, cats, dogs, etc. These are less these are the lesser forms of things, material representations of immaterial and perfect forms located in some transcendent realm. In other words, a tree is not just a tree, but uh, an imperfect uh, and material representation of the ideal tree, uh, or the essence of treeness, if you will, that exists in this higher realm. And this, this hierarchy of forms, this, this duality, this bifurcation of reality applies to everything, both living and non-living things. And it's not hard to see, in my opinion, it's not hard to see, how that got translated into this, this Greek worldview, got translated into religion, uh, particularly Christianity which taught this duality between spirit and flesh, right? Body and soul, heaven and earth, et cetera. Remember, Christianity is a form of Hellenized Judaism. It is, it is Greek-eyes Judaism to a great degree. Uh, the Greeks ruled the Holy Land, of course, just before the Romans did and brought with them their culture. And it became mixed in with, with Jewish culture. There, there's no question that Platonism and other Greek traditions had a big impact on both Judaism and Christianity. And Gnosticism was very much a part of that. And, and while it's not clear just how much not Gnosticism and Platonism influenced the writers of the New Testament and early Christianity, there is no question in, in, in my mind and in the mind of most scholars that it absolutely did. Uh, and there are countless examples of Gnostic influence, influences and Platonist influences in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings. For example, Paul argues famously in Romans that we are no longer justified by or, or saved or by works of religious law, but by faith in Jesus, which some have always translated or interpreted as, you know, knowing and believing the right things about Jesus. There, there's no question that was an understanding of Christianity, even in the early church, and remains so even today. Th this idea that salvation is achieved through knowing and believing things about Jesus, right? That's kind of a Platonist or Gnostic idea. This idea that Christianity is about saving knowledge or, or saving beliefs. Consider also texts like 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul famously argues or says, and I'm quoting here, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. I will tell you a secret. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, 
for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality, end quote. Again, that's a, that's a, classic, that's a classic Gnostic dualism there between the body and soul, heaven and earth. We are a two-part being, according to Paul, you know, spirit and flesh. Our spirit is immortal, good, and godly. Our flesh or, or our body is sinful. It's mortal. It's, it's ungodly. Therefore, we must, according to Paul, reject the flesh and all of its ways, all of its desires, and live according to the spirit instead in the hopes that one day we will shed this corrupt and mortal body and ascend into the heavenly realm. That's, that's Paul. And that's pretty Gnostic. <laughs> it's uh, pretty Gnostic. You know, this kind of thinking permeated the early church. Uh, there, there are around 100 known Gnostic texts and writings from this time period, meaning the first and second century. And they, they reinforced this kind of thinking. And, and because they were written at the same time as the texts that, that made it into the New Testament, they were considered, these, these Gnostic texts were considered rival texts, as Bob said earlier. Uh, you know, in fact, this is one of the reasons why the third and fourth century church was so embroiled in, in theological controversies and had all these councils and debates and meetings between, between the bishops. It was to decide what texts, what, what beliefs were orthodox and which were not. You know, Gnosticism was, was among a few different versions of Christianity at that time, all competing for dominance in, in the first three centuries after Christ. So the question becomes, you know, why didn't, why didn't Gnosticism become orthodoxy? You know, why, why didn't Gnosticism, why did Gnosticism get labeled heresy and other Christian texts and ideas get labeled orthodoxy? Uh, I think there are multiple reasons for that, some of which we've covered already. But it's important to understand that, that Gnosticism often, not always, but often, uh, saw little to no connection between Jesus and Israel. Uh, or between Jesus and the God revealed in the Hebrew scriptures, a.k.a. the Old Testament. In fact, if anything, many Gnostic Christians believe that the Hebrew scriptures were, were false and or described, a, uh, described the worship and acts of another deity other than the one revealed in, the, in Jesus, you know, other than the, the good and true deity revealed in Jesus. This means that even though Gnosticism may have had Jewish roots, there is something kind of anti-Jewish going on in it, in the way that many Gnostics saw Judaism uh, as being about a lesser, a lesser religion, about a lesser God, or a false religion about a false God. I think this had a lot to do with why Gnosticism never became orthodoxy. And yet the fact is that Gnostic ideas, as I mentioned previously, permeate orthodoxy or what we might call traditional Christianity, even to this day. I, I'm sure you can see how, right? The dualism between flesh and spirit, this idea of a mortal body and an immortal soul, you know, heaven above and earth below. This idea that salvation is acquired through having, you know, special knowledge or special beliefs, you know, the right knowledge, the right beliefs about God, Jesus, and the Bible, right? Th those, are, those are very Gnostic ideas that remain in orthodoxy today. Consider also, right, the popular belief among many Christians 
even today, that this world is, is hopelessly corrupt. It's, it's fallen, it's corrupt, it's evil. This body is, is fallen and corrupt, um, doomed for destruction. Therefore, the goal is to escape it, both this body and this realm through the rapture, right? Or, or through the second coming or through, you know, dying and go to heaven, right? So, so orthodoxy, despite its best intentions to eradicate Gnosticism, or at least to, to distance itself from it, uh, orthodoxy is still kind of tied to it in, in more ways than one. And, and so, you know, my, my problem with orth, orthodoxy isn't that it's anti-Gnostic, but uh, <laughs> that, it's, that it wasn't anti-Gnostic enough. For me, the gospel is really is really antithetical to a lot of what Gnosticism says. To, to me, the Jesus we find in the Gospels define faith as a way of living rather than, you know, beliefs we might hold in our head about God. You know, faith to Jesus was about love and justice and living rightly with one's neighbor. It, it wasn't about religious practices or religious beliefs or forms of religious piety. Um, sorry, I lost my place in my notes here. Um, Jesus actually criticized those who thought that, you know, following him or, or, or that faith was about religious practices or religious piety. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for this, right? The fact is Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of religious law or religious practices, but a kingdom of love and justice, a kingdom of love, pure love. And anyone who loves is, is his disciple, be they Jew or Gentile or Samaritan. And anyone who gives themselves over to acts of love and justice, these are the children of God, according to Jesus, period. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven, he says in Matthew 7, is, you know, my disciple. Uh, such an understanding of the gospel, it seems to me, is, is antithetical to Gnosticism. Uh, so is so is the nature of the incarnation itself, it seems to me, which, which is about a God who forsook heaven for earth, right? A God who emptied himself of all transcendence and glory and power and became human and took and took on a mortal human life and shared in our sufferings and even unto death, right? In, in this way, Jesus, God incarnate, you know, shows us that to be human is to be divine that this body is divine, that this life and this world is sacred and holy and, and worth dying for. You know, I, I prefer to read Jesus's story as completely antithetical to any Gnostic escapism, to, to any Gnostic disavowal or denigration of this, of this flesh, of this life, of, uh, of this world, right? Uh, you know, in, any, any Gnostic escapism in favor of a utopia somewhere else out there in the great beyond seems to me to be antithetical to, to uh, the incarnation. And I find such, such escapism actually to be kind of nihilistic. It's often a way of saying, you know, that this life in this world is, is trash and meaningless other than its utility as being a great place to test people, right? To see if they're worthy of getting into heaven when they die. That's, that's kind of a nihilistic view of this life in this world. Historically, I think such thinking leads to all kind of careless disregard for this life, right? This thinking is what leads many evangelicals today to reject the idea of social justice and, and the notion that we as Christians 
should care deeply about matters like racism and poverty, right? When, when you don't believe that this world is your home and that uh, the point of your faith is to go somewhere else and to escape this world, you know, why, why would you really care about this world and its problems, right? Um, this is where modern Gnostic thinking often leads today. And, and I think the gospel is totally antithetical to that. So as you can tell, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Gnosticism, but, but to be fair, I do wonder, and I'll conclude with this, uh, I, I do wonder if there are some aspects of Gnosticism that, um, th that, are, that are kind of valid and true. You know, for example, perhaps anyone who believes that our consciousness goes on after death or that upon death we will be made one with God or will be united with the one, the source, with, with cosmic consciousness, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, perhaps that, that hope or that belief you know, is kind of Gnostic in a way. And, and maybe that's, you know, and to me, that's beautiful, right? And that's shared by many people of many different religious backgrounds or, or no religious background. That's just kind of a mystical idea that, that, that you know, our consciousness at, at some point can, uh, you know, after this body disintegrates, can merge with the source, right? That's just kind of a mystical belief shared by many people that isn't bad, right? I don't, I don't think that's a, that's, a, that's a bad thing to believe, but maybe there's something kind of Gnostic about that, right? L likewise, perhaps anyone who believes that there are certain kinds of knowledge that liberate and heal, right? Certain kinds of knowledge that, that give life, certain kinds of knowledge that, that produce spiritual experiences or provide us with a sense of connection to, to something divine, sacred, and holy. I, perhaps anyone who believes that is, is a little Gnostic, and, and what's wrong with that? Uh, I mean, I think one could argue that the experience of deconstruction, right, is even somewhat Gnostic, right? This deconstruction is, of course, about gaining new knowledge and new understanding, and, and once one acquires that knowledge and really takes it in, often they are set free from oppressive religion, oppressive uh, ways of being, and, and in some ways, right, we're, we're given new life as a result of deconstruction, at least that's what I think, right, we're given new spiritual vitality, or, or a sense of being awake, right, so, so there's something often, maybe not always, but, but often kind of Gnostic about deconstruction too, at least it seems to me, knowledge is a very spiritual thing. So that's my presentation on Gnosticism today, uh, I hope that wasn't like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> I hope that wasn't too much. Um, and now, of course, I want to hear from you. Uh, what do you think about all this? Where do you see Gnosticism playing out in your life or in the church? Uh, is, is it all bad? Are there aspects of it that you like or resonate with? Um, want to open it up for discussion. So, yeah, anybody. I think um, there's obviously an influence in Greek thought into how Descartes was thinking. Descartes also kind of talks about that mind-body split and in that time period of enlightenment, um, it kind of feeds into a lot of the white supremacist beliefs about race. Mm. There was a lot there about how white people were of the mind and everyone else was of the body. Even um, this bled into like music, this idea that melody and harmony, the white way of doing music was of the mind. And then anything that had rhythm was of the body. Anyone that had drums in their music was of the body. And I really? think there's, yeah, wow. so there's this really interesting, um, and that carries into like 
why rock and roll was so scandalous. And there's, you know, there's a lot kind of there in terms of how that plays out in music. But I think even this idea of um, the way that missions can be now, right? Us white people with this wonderful secret knowledge, we're gonna go into this community where they just don't have that secret knowledge. And we're gonna go give them the secret knowledge because we can save them because we have yeah. it and they don't. So um, I think, and I, and I remember someone telling me too that, for a long time in missions work, they wouldn't do any service for the community until people converted. So it was like, oh, we'll dig you a well, or we'll give you these supplies, but we're not going to do it until you convert, right? Until you believe the same secrets that we do, we're not going to engage in these acts of love toward you. And I think there's just, there's so many ways that that's been perverted across time. Um, that I yeah I just feel like this idea of the mind and the body being separate whether that I don't think that's directly responsible I think hatred is responsible for uh, racism and, and a lot of the other isms but I think it was sort of hijacked and utilized as a way of justifying some of that hatred and um yeah I think I'm sort of rambling about a number of various things so I'll stop rambling but that was just some of the things that were coming to my mind oh those are really good points yeah Thanks, Ashley. Yeah, no, that's, um, you know, that that mind body split, um, th this idea that our body, you know, and that, of course, touches on sexuality so often, right? This idea that sex is inherently evil. I mean, that was, a, it was sort of a, if you read a lot of even early Christian thought, there's this kind of like, you know, denigration of any of sexuality itself as a kind of fallen practice uh, as a result of the fall or something. Um yeah, yeah, that's that's that definitely touches on Gnosticism. Yeah, and yeah, that's just really a, go ahead, Max. It's a really recent example of what you were saying. I saw a headline yesterday that uh, a plane of missionaries uh, just visited a an island uh, in the South Pacific where there had been zero cases of COVID, and they brought COVID to the island, and there are now 165 cases of COVID on this tiny island because of missionaries right who like who felt that it was their duty to go and spread um the word and i, I re remarked when i saw it i was like oh that's what's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years is this separation between like hey we will give you a deadly virus um because it is so important for us to bring this intellectual right ascent a driven uh, model of how your salvation, right, can be can be won, and it's just just very very right on point with with your point, Ashley. Wow, that's a tale as old as time. I mean, this idea of Christian missionaries bringing with them not just the the, the cross, but of course disease and and colonialism and all that nonsense. Yeah, no, yeah. Interesting. So I'm seeing a lot of great comments in the in the chat. I'm trying to uh, keep up with what's going on here too. Um, looks like people are getting some questions answered there. Um, other other thoughts, remarks, questions. Hello. Yes. Hey, Andre. I uh, I think from what I've heard, I was not aware of uh, this uh, current and this part of the Christian history. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I uh, I yeah I I don't from what I've heard I I don't think I'm 
a fan either for a couple of reasons. One of them being that if we have this like dichotomy between body and soul and whole, like everything just is just bad on earth, it also encourages a sort of uh, irresponsibility and saying that, oh, all of my sins and everything is just because of how bad this earth is and how everything is and my soul is absolutely pure. And it kind of, it feels like the easy way out compared to actually facing your flaws and facing your, uh, the evil that we, you know, we harbor sometimes and the bad parts of our personality instead of just delegating it, oh, it's something, an external thing, it's not my fault. And I don't think that's, that's constructive, obviously, and yeah, that's not in line with the New Testament. And another one is interesting of like, just like giving up on, you know, trying to uh, make this world a better place because, well, it's just temporary and we're just living it. It's kind of like a waiting room for, to go to paradise because that's so antithetical to how I uh, kind of like perceive that because I feel like if we cannot create a sort of like small, this may sound pretentious, but if we cannot create a small corner of paradise in our hearts of like just trying to, you know, uh, just uh, put in a bit of positivity in this world and I try to like harbor as much love as we have in our hearts, then why would we even want to go to a heaven if we are so disjointed from our idea of heaven? Why would we deserve to go to heaven if we didn't try to create it within ourselves? And the only way to create it within ourselves is by trying to make a positive change around us. So by giving up, it kind of like, it feels like it would drift people even apart from their notion of heaven that they feel like it's owned to them. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think so. And there's some really interesting good thoughts in there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the, the crux of the issue here. Um, you know, this, this idea of, uh, I, in, in my, we are in essence um, choosing a completely different understanding of the gospel uh, from Gnosticism in progressive Christianity or what we might call radical theology as well, um, where it's, it's not about transcendence, about imminence, about finding God, the sacred and the holy in this life, this world, the kingdom is among us, right? These kinds of ideas that we find uh, in Jesus's teachings and in this idea of the incarnation. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it is really, and my, and if I may say so, uh, even though I think dialectically, there are some Gnostic ideas, you know, that permeate even kind of, you know, progressive Christianity, what we call progressive Christianity. I, I think that a lot of what is going on in progressive Christianity is really antithetical to Gnosticism. Um, that's my opinion. Um, but, uh, yeah, really good thoughts. Um, other 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 thoughts or questions today? Yeah, I was just going to chime in on just this. I think there there would be a very interesting dialogue about like the history of missionary groups and and the the Gnostic um, relationship between that because you know like just learning a lot more about Central and Southern American history, the Catholic Church and the way that they utilized this this means to convert individuals who one had no interest in christianity uh and secondly didn't speak the language uh, a lot of the justifications for murdering uh you know uh the committing the genocides that happened in south america in the early days and even further was this justification of well they're dirty and they don't understand wh what god is and that's the reason why they took lands 
Uh, one such passage is described as a Catholic priest uh, demanding that they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and these natives not understanding what they're saying because they don't speak Spanish. Um, to the point where there was one rebel that that was burned at the stake, and he asked the priests, you know, uh, they were like, "Do you do you want to confess your sins to?" to go to heaven. And he asked, will you be going to heaven? And he said, yes. And he said, well, then I would rather go to hell. Yeah. And then they, then they burn him in the state because he just, it's this idea that, that, you know, while on earth you're renting a room, but when you go to heaven, you're own, you own the property. And, and there's this lack of respect for the here and now, because you're just simply renting a room, you can do commit genocide, and you're okay by you know you're you're okay by dirtying up a space because you're not in charge of it, but out there you know in heaven you're you're absolved of everything, and I think that that's there is that toxicity of the Gnosticism that is in the Catholic faith and is in Christianity because you're allowed to do terrible things here that you're able to get away with it when you when you go to heaven, and it's like but but you're still committing terrible things here. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're pointing out, if I might just respond to that, that within that kind of Gnostic duality, there is this deep disavowal of our humanity and the humanity of others. That's really kind of what's going on there. Um, by by creating those hierarchies and those, those dualities, it's a way of actually dehumanize, dehumanizing ourselves through that kind of mind body split or spirit flesh split uh, and dehumanizing others. It's inherent, I think. Um, and that's what's so problematic about it. And interestingly, when we look at Native American religions, they are kind of radically anti-Gnostic in, in the sense they're non-hierarchical religions where they see harmony and unity between, you know, nature and us and, and the, the kind of this, you know, spirit and, and matter. You know, and and um, you know, we we can go down that road. I think there's so much in Native American theology that can help us. Um, I think have a more healthy spirituality, even as Christians, uh, and and find even within you know the again the incarnation and this idea of a God who forsook heaven for earth and became fully human. Uh, you know, I, I think there's wonderful ideas to to go there that that break down any kind of Gnostic dualities that cause us to dehumanize ourselves or others. Uh, and, and to rather, you know, in a sense, embrace the body, embrace this life in all of its, um, all of its goodness, um, you know, and find, find God here and now. There's so much there, so much good stuff there. Yeah. Um, other, other thoughts today. I'm, I'm trying to keep up what's going on in the chat. Lots of good stuff here. Hey, Aaron. Hey. Hey, Sarah. So when you originally were talking about how um, Gnostics believe that like trees here are representations of like the ultimate tree. Well, that's I was more hearing... Platonism. That, that, that's more Platonism. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay, great. Thanks for answering my question. Oh, because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's really beautiful. Like yeah, yeah. where the representations of God, then like God is within us. And I was like, 
romanticizing that and then I was yeah. confused because I was like why would our body be like like evil if we are sure. representations of the ultimate um so, yeah so so you're not seeing a duality there in Platonism you're saying that there's a kind of oneness between these these different things that's that's interesting yeah I mean there's definitely you can go that way with it yeah I like yeah. that yeah yeah I mean that's that's kind of the crux of the at least what's been most popular with the gospel of Thomas, which I think is probably the most famous Gnostic yeah. work um, is that, and one of the reason it got rejected was that idea of, um, you know, a, a saying in it that split a piece of wood and I'm there, lift the stone and you will find me this kind of like pervasiveness of God in and through everything is sort of like a pantheism. Uh, pantheism. Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, distinctly not orthodox, but definitely a part, at least of, of that tradition. Yeah. And the Gnostic Gospels are so weird. If you, they're, most of them are really short, um, or the Gnostic writings. But if you have a chance, they're really worth looking into. Like the Gospel of Peter has a talking cross where like the cross actually speaks to uh, the crowd at the crucifixion. And they're just, they're really, really interesting, really weird takes. And some of those are reasons why they were like, get this stuff out of here. Um, but let's, let's be clear. There's a lot in orthodoxy that could, depending on how you look at it, is kind of out there too. <laughs> 100%, right? Like the, we have zombies in the gospel of, uh, uh, it's in Matthew, right? I think where wait, there's um, zombies in Matthew, please go on. Where the bot, like where, where the, the temple curtain is torn in half and the bodies come out oh, of yes. the ground and prophesy and like speak. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's really weird in our own texts too, that are, you know, we just don't think about because they're just a part of our tradition. No, you're right. That's why I always cringe when I hear Christians, you know, like make fun of other religions for being outrageous. And I'm kind of like, do you, are you fully aware of what the, we'll do <laughs> of what passes as orthodoxy in traditional Christianity? Um, you know, and you know, it's anyway, we, we, we go further down the road if you want, but uh, good, good points, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, Bob, uh, a, a lot of those texts I think are like, uh, you know, they're really purposefully uh, sort of strange and hard to understand uh, really by design. I think that's the, like when you read sort of Gnostic, you know, sort of uh, gospels as opposed to, you know, the canonized gospels, there are strange things and things that are hard to explain in the, you know, canonized gospels. But I feel like when you, when you read Gnostic scriptures, it's, it's, it's really obvious that they're trying to construct a religion that is purposefully strange and difficult to understand because their whole uh, approach to salvation was that you had to possess some sort of uh, secret divine knowledge uh, in, in order to be saved. So it was different than like, you know, the, the canonized gospels and Paul, especially it's, you know, Jesus died. We're, you know, um, sin came into the world with Adam and Jesus died on the cross and his shed blood paid the, you know, paid the penalty for, for our sins uh, as, as, you know, sort of as human beings. And that was distinct from the, the Gnostics that, you know, they like knowledge, you know, actual knowledge of these sort of weird, mysterious ideas uh, was what saved you, you know, not um, Jesus dying in a physical body and then and then rising from the dead three days later. 
So it's like, so when you read their, their writings, you know, I feel like it kind of, that's one of the things that like pops out to you is just how purposefully uh, strange it is. And it's almost kind of similar to like uh, um, apocalyptic writings, yes. um, which are purposefully coded in these weird ways with weird symbolism and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, I think the closest analog for, for, from like canonized uh, scripture is really like the book of revelation because it's so um, because it's, 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 it's weird and strange and it's hard to understand. There's a lot of symbolism. And I think in that sense, the Gnostic scriptures are, are kind of like that, you know, it's like building an entire, instead of, it's almost like building a religion, a Christian religion out of only books that are like the book of revelations, you know, <laughs> of revelation, you know? And so um, it, that's the kind of, I feel like that's the sort of the weirdness of it. Yeah, and I'll go further than that. First of all, great point, Abe. But I, I, you know, the more that I read Paul and the Gospels, you know, the canonized Gospels, the more I really think that the writers of these Gospels and, and these texts were deeply, deeply invested in symbolism and metaphor and knew exactly what they were doing and believed that, you know, in order to really understand the underlying spiritual truth, you had to decipher the symbolism. And, and I, I think, unfortunately, fundamentalism tells us, no, you read the text, you know, literally, you know, and like, no, these, these were brilliant people 2000 years ago who, who knew exactly what they were writing. And it was symbol, symbolic and metaphor of underlying spiritual realities and spiritual truths they really believed in. But, but the actual writing itself, the, the words, the, the, the stories were intended to be understood as holding deep spiritual symbolism. And you have, in order to, you know, to know, right, and to, you know, this Gnostic idea permeated, I think, all the right. And, and again, it was kind of this Platonist Greek way of approaching, you know, reality. And and I, I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. And I think, unfortunately, we've lost that because of fundamentalism and orthodoxy that has, like, you know, for the sake of power and control, drilled into us these other ideas. But anyway, great, great point, Dave. I hope that makes sense. Um, didn't at one point Jesus tell the disciples, um, to them, it's not given this mysterious knowledge because his yeah. disciples asked, you know, why do you talk at parables? And he said, well, it's not meant for them yet. <laughs> it's, you know, and, and didn't he bring them aside and teach them separately from yeah. the masses? Yeah. And there's <laughs> this idea of the messianic secret, right. Uh, in the gospels, this idea, you know, that Jesus didn't want everyone to just be told, yeah, he's the son of God, the Messiah, Messiah. It was supposed to be like rightly discerned or, you know, you had to discern it. Uh, parables weren't just pedagogical devices, great analogies. They were meant, you know, to again, reinforce this idea that only the spiritual can rightly discern the word of the Lord. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, I think that's, that's really interesting and kind of cool. And, uh, you know, so I'm not like really, I'm very critical of Gnosticism, but there's, there's ideas going on here that I really like as well. Um, you know, so it's dialectical. It's not like, oh, this is all just garbage. Like, well, this is kind of like, this is kind of cool. And this is the way the ancients thought. And there's a lot we can learn from it too. Anyway. Boy, and to your point, Randy, Jesus had his 12 disciples that he poured into primarily, but even amongst them, he had Peter, James, and John, his inner three that had a different, more close kind of relationship in according to the gospels so there's these like layers of kind of secrecy even within the texts that we have ourselves mm. yeah like they were 
they're the ones that went to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? <laughs> yeah. It's all very interesting. Let those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Mm. As, as Caputo says, look, if, if, uh, if you don't like symbolism and poetry, the Bible's not for you. <laughs> he mm. said, re religion's not for you. Christianity's not for you. You know, if, if you don't dig that stuff, sorry. Uh, you know, then this, this isn't for you. Um, yeah. I think to Gnosticism, they have, there's like one spirit and then all these little ands that emanate from it. Like there are numerous gods, like Jesus was a demiurge yep. Yep. and there are all these different gods. Um, angels. Not just one. And yeah. angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lots of divine beings there, kind of polytheistic. Yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> great stuff today, everybody. Um, great conversation. Um, really pleased with how this went. I hope you are as well. Um, this will be up on the podcast um, if you want to share it or you want to go back over it. Um, but otherwise, thanks for being here. And uh, for all you uh, newcomers and visitors, uh, welcome. Um, and uh, yeah, go in peace, everybody. If you want to stay, stay and uh, chat a little more, we can do that. But otherwise, we're formally dismissed. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Aaron. Sure thing. Bye.